We return, dear brethren, this afternoon to the study that we began last Sunday entitled Content to be a Christian, and we have journeyed some distance within the chapter that ends 1 Timothy, chapter 6, and I want to commence our journey this afternoon, taking up where we left off and then entering into what might be more of the heart of the message, though certainly the study we had last Sunday, which is available as a recording for you to listen to again, presents some very important preliminary thoughts. What we ended with, you may recall last Sunday, is what we termed epistemological greediness. And we use that term to manifest the kind of confrontation that Paul presents against a perspective that, as he says himself, is found within religion. It is found within the environs of confessing Christendom, even in his day. Because at the end of the fifth verse of 1 Timothy chapter 6, he speaks of some that suppose that gain is godliness. And one of the objectives of today's study in completing our investigations into this chapter, is to help manifest more fully what is the general spiritual operation that is underway here. What is the disposition? What is the drive? What is the makeup of the individual that supposes that gain is godliness? So the Lord willing, as you continue to Follow along as we exegete this chapter. It'll emerge more and more to you that this is not just a statement about the wrong-headedness of the prosperity gospel preachers that think that if you have a lot of money, that must be a sign that you have God's favor. It certainly does speak to that errant idea, but I believe that there's a much broader application For, among other things, it isn't that likely that we had those kind of ministries like the Kenneth Copelands and the Fred Prices and others of that ilk in Paul's day. Not to that degree, not to that showmanship. I don't think that is that likely. I have no knowledge of that as one who has some degree of awareness of church history. Now, you wouldn't have to be up to the sort of display that modern times allows with technology and videography and all those sorts of things to still imbibe the basic orientation. But that is my point, is not to just see this as speaking against that kind of over-ornamentation that sometimes is thought to be necessary to manifest or to operate within religion and within something that honors God. And, you know, whether it's the ornamentation of your church building or the ornamentation that you can display on your person with your whatever they might be, I don't know, thousand dollar suits or more, and the way in which the church is decorated. And then, of course, your mansion somewhere on a nice little plot of land that you got because you're so faithful to God, he blessed you in that way. You see, when we think about this more at its germinal fundamental principle, then it entails a more 
spiritual reflection, something that I would argue that we all need to reflect on and we all need to search our lives about whether or not there are ways in which we think that some kind of gain experience is a validation of us as being loved or cared for by God. So let's continue to think about that. Epistemological greediness was where we left off. That idea itself is beyond money as such. We made that point last time. This is the idea that the power of my intellect is the proof of my godliness. It's the proof of the idea that God loves me because I know so much and perhaps others then one thinks or perhaps others even thinks think this of those who are intellectually endowed that that one must be really godly to have such an intellect. In addition to this, it is also perhaps the idea that if one appears to have a powerful intellect, then one can stand more in the place of God. One can act as if one is closer to a God-like standing and therefore exert authority over others by virtue of the power of their intellect. Now notice that in this thinking, the emphasis is upon the person's native ability, the person's claims, without first establishing their own lack of individual personal wisdom and simply sourcing all of their advice and counsel and understanding and knowledge in He who is the treasure of all wisdom and knowledge, Jesus Christ. That they have first become a fool and disavowed the claim that my intellect as such, my knowledge as such, my degrees as such, the accruing of a lot of information, my ability to speak or anything in that direction, they have disavowed that that as such, that as such is any proof that I have God's favor or that I am closer to God than you are. That is a misunderstanding. That in itself, however intellectually presented, is foolishness. It isn't true. It is to make a fundamental misjudgment. It is to think that gain, gaining knowledge in this case, is somehow proof of something positive, something that God approves of, something that is in the direction of God's favor. Because I am intellectually more richly endowed than you, I am therefore more like God than you, I am closer to the true, to the divine, because I know more than you, you must be below me. This is actually a form of Gnosticism, by the way. It's a form of the idea of emanations, that we all sort of emanate from God, and you lack the knowledge I have, and since I can say more things than you can or have more knowledge, even about the Bible for that matter, than you do, then that alone means that I am closer to God than you are. This is not true, and we wish to speak about this more fully. I did think, though, as a segue, that I would reinforce this thought that is more just tying the study in with where we left last Sunday. I would give you this quotation from the British Bible scholar G.H. Pember, primarily known for his insights into eschatology. 
But he has the following to say about our handling even of the word of God and the deep things of God's truth. He says, G.H. Pember does, but we would pray for power to remember that overconfidence and dogmatism are altogether out of place in the discussion of subjects so profound and solemn. Here primarily, now I'm speaking, here primarily in reference to the Word of God and handling deep subjects, like, for example, some not as vividly obvious subjects as our eschatological reflections, for example. But if it would apply to thoughts about the Word of God, I would argue it should apply to thoughts about any subject that has any meaningful bearing upon our lives, that in any way that we affect one another, that's a very deep and profound thing, and we should be very careful about our handling of information and our proffering of counsel and ideas, and to think that just because we've read a few books, we've gained a few ideas, that gain is now somehow godliness. It's equipped me to tell you how to live your life. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting overall that... There's no hope that we cannot know truth at all. That is certainly not what I'm saying. Listen to last Sunday's teaching. We are making a clear distinction between one who stands on his or her own two feet and just feels like accruing knowledge to themselves, substantiates their ability to speak on God's behalf. You must first disavow, absolutely, not just by virtue of a phrase, inside your spirit, in your mind, you must say, I personally know nothing. And anything that I learn is all credit to the Spirit of God who guide me into that truth. It's all credit to Jesus Christ who has brought truth into this lying, deceived world. And I must always reassess my understandings of that which God himself alone owns, and that is truth. He owns truth, not I. I only am allowed to be a steward of it. These thoughts are very important, though I think they are obvious once stated to any Christian ears, but consistency is the thing, dear brothers and sisters. Consistency is the thing so that before today is out, you're not engaged in some kind of conversation where you spend most of your time saying, but I think, but I think, but I think, in contradiction to the Word of God, and you haven't had the presence of mind to realize that what does it matter what I think? What matters is what God has said. Let's continue and finish Pember's quotation. With chastened and humbled hearts must we enter the holiest, sprinkled with the blood of our our slain Lord, and leaning not upon our own wisdom, but upon the aid of the Holy Spirit, who alone knows the mind of God and alone can reveal it. And if these be our conditions... There will be found in us none of that vain self-reliance, at times bordering on arrogance, which is so often conspicuous in discussions, even of the most solemn themes. May God grant the churches and the men and the sisters of the churches, may he grant us Acts chapter 15 tables, around which men of the highest qualifications gather together and discuss as brothers 
what the mind of the Lord is and search the scriptures and allow the scriptures and the guidance of the Holy Spirit alone to determine what their positions should be going forward. Well, then we are going to move beyond the fifth and sixth verses and we're going to look at the first principle that I want to bring to your attention this afternoon. This first principle I am entitling the lying logic of linking gain with godliness. And here again, we're just segueing from where we were last Sunday and into the rest of the chapter. I want to remind you that there was a remark in the end of the fifth verse about a certain position that supposes, that thinks, nomizo, that thinks that gain is godliness And Paul says to Timothy, turn away from that perspective. And Paul counters that position with this remark in the sixth verse, this beautiful, simple statement in the sixth verse, which for us is the heart of this study, and maybe it is the heart of the sixth chapter. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So whether or not you are able to fully comprehend the import of what Paul is stating there, we can begin by saying he is pointing out the lying logic of linking gain with godliness. He is saying it is not true. Godliness with contentment as opposed to gain is great gain. Now most of you will have a decent idea about what contentment means, but it won't hurt to explain for a moment a little bit more fully what the Greek term here entails. The Greek term is autarkia. It has autos as its prefix, which for us just simply means self in this instance. And then it is attached to the verb Arkeo, which means sufficient or enough. So it means to be self-sufficient. Now that's quite interesting, simply because this term was often used in Stoic literature, which had a version of contentment and self-sufficiency that is more in the direction of, say, Buddhism, where you learn not to let anything bother you, and you find a place of nirvana or a place of peace or a place of godlike aseity. So we do want to say at the outset here that this self-sufficiency is not something that we arrive at on our own. It is more that we, through understanding how to live the Christian life properly, we become the recipients of this inner sufficiency. That is, Christianity can work in you individually, self-sufficiency. And if you grow in your Christian faith and you are counseled such that that is what you should pursue, that place of inner peace and happiness in Christ and so on, that if that is developed in your life, that is a real goal that one has reached. That is great gain. So I want to speak about a number of things that Paul brings forward in this direction, 
so that we can begin to see how this is all working. First of all, let's look at the lie that would state that grasping and gathering is the path to godliness. As a matter of fact, godliness often requires releasing and reduction over against those that suppose that the way to confirm that God is on your side and manifest to others that you are under the blessing of God is to get more. And when that is their orientation, they become graspers and gatherers so that they can demonstrate to themselves and to others that I am close to God, that God's blessing is upon me. Let's reflect on this. We begin with Jesus speaking about this subject in what is known as the parable of the rich fool. And that's an interesting coordination of words, isn't it? I'm not saying that fool must always be attached to rich, but probably more often than not, at least in this age of fallen humanity and even Christians that are learning to live the life of Christ with full understanding, rich and fool often go together. And Jesus gives us the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. I'll begin reading in the 13th verse, and perhaps you'll follow along with me. One of the company, in other words, one of Jesus' followers, let's say one of the church members who is amazingly in Jesus' presence under his teaching, but somehow supposes that gain is godliness. So it's possible. He says, didaskileth, with the vocative. He says, Master, speak to my brother. I assume it's a biological brother in this instance. Speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. Well, why would you want an inheritance divided? Well, everybody knows it's so that you can get more money. This man was not embarrassed to ask that question. So obviously, if Jesus were to divide the inheritance or speak to his brother, and as a result, money would come to this individual who's talking to Christ, then he could walk away and feel like, you see, Jesus loves me. Jesus favors me. Jesus agrees with my mentality. I just gained money when you were illegally taking it away from me, and I knew how to be smart about this, I went to Jesus, or I went to court, or I went to your house, and I said, give it back. And if I get it back, I'm going to say, thank you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. You see, God answers prayer. But that isn't what happens here. Jesus responds and says, man. He doesn't say disciple. He says, you're like a man. Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? Now, I could pause and say, is Jesus disavowing the fact that he is going to judge the quick and the dead? No. What he's saying is, I'm speaking to a would-be disciple who is not yet before the judgment seat of Christ, so I am in the capacity as you yourself addressed me as a teacher of how to live the Christian life while sojourning in this earth before my second coming. And you might suppose that gain is godliness, but you are a bit ahead of the story. He says, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? I could say, yet. 
And he said unto them, Take heed, Jesus now addressing the disciples at large, Take heed and be aware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Do you hear just that, brothers and sisters? The title of this teaching is Content to be a Christian. And I will be very open about the interest of this study. It is to sure up our hearts so that going forward, whatever our experiences are, we can be content with simply being a Christian. And if things are taken away from us, we will already have taught our hearts and embraced the truth that our life does not consist in the abundance of things which we possess. If they take away our church, if they take away our possessions, if they take away our material goods, are you content to be a Christian? And this is entirely what this chapter is all about. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. Well, praise the Lord for that. There's nothing wrong with that. The ground produces, God blesses. We're not suggesting, by the way, and I can't cover all of these things in one message. You will appreciate that. But I'm not suggesting that poverty is a mark of godliness either. But we're talking about a certain leaning, a tendency, a mindset. We're seeking to instill the proper balance and the proper orientation in our hearts. And we should listen to our Lord Jesus. Because as I just read to you in the 16th verse, he says, there was a certain rich man. Well, God is providential, isn't he? Promotion comes not from the east or the west. God sets up and brings down. There was nothing wrong for a certain idea that this rich man had been granted some favor from God. And we're told that his ground brought forth plentifully. And he thought, and here we go with what I'm reminding you about under the title of epistemological greediness, he thought within himself. He didn't ask God. He didn't get on his knees and reflect about this. He didn't perhaps even go to his pastor and get counsel about this. He didn't look in the old godly writings of past eras and reflect on how the Christian should be oriented toward accumulating wealth. He thought within himself, saying, what will I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns, build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, this is almost comical. He's got his ideas, and he's talking to himself. He's not talking to God. He's not getting any counsel from outside. He's talking to himself. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, soul, eat, drink, and be merry. And I think the most important phrase in this parable, one of the most important phrases in the entire Bible is what comes next in the 20th verse, but God. You were talking to yourself. You weren't going into the Word. You were maybe working through the perspective that perhaps some human minister put into your heart and 
And, you know, we're all earthen vessels and our ministries are only as good as the word that we represent well. But here you can follow along with me. He had all these ideas. My business is prospering. I'm getting more fruits. What should I do? I should accumulate more. I should build bigger barns. And when I do, then the world will see that God favors me and I can eat, drink and be merry. I can take my ease. I've I've gained some sort of standing before God. I can kind of rest because I've proven to myself, to my heart and to others, God has favored my life. But we read, but God said unto him, you fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What is the implication in this? This last remark of Jesus. Well, the implication is that godliness will often look like the very opposite of gaining and gathering. It will look like releasing and reduction. I think one of the most illuminating passages along these lines is the well-known passage in the second chapter of Philippians. I do want to read some verses from that chapter, and I will be reading from the ESV version, beginning in the fifth verse. Remember what is before us. Some suppose that gain is godliness, that when your life looks like it is getting more in one measure or another, we're not against, brothers and sisters, God blessing our lives. We're not against God growing the church. We're not against the Lord blessing, for example, the church with a bigger building and more chairs and more technology and those sorts of things. We're not against God manifesting relationships and more and more people are in agreement with you and come into fellowship with you and all those sorts of things. But if you suppose that gain in any of those directions is evidence of godliness just because those things are happening, then I think you're getting pretty close to what we read in the 20th verse of Luke 12, thou fool, because there's much more to think about than that, and it all is relative to the fact that you are going to stand before God and give an account for your life. And I am here to say as we continue to work through these ideas, that if you aren't fundamentally at peace with contentment, with simply being a Christian, and you'll go to the dis- you'll go the distance if they strip you of everything but Christ, you will allow it to happen, and you will be content in that experience. And if you do live that way, then that contentment is great gain. So let's think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Does godliness always look like gain? Does it always look like gathering and grasping and pulling to yourself? Verse 5, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he already had the presentation of God. He had the glory of God. Anyone who saw him would know that he is God's son, that his glory and his His situation manifests and demonstrates that that He is the favored Son. But though that was true, as we read, He did not count this equality with God a thing to be grasped. He had riches. He had position. 
He had status. He had a name. Do you follow what I'm saying? And in order to fulfill his ministry, those things had to be taken away from him in a very real sense. And the impulse of those that suppose that gain is godliness, those who feel that sort of way, they are driven to hold on to those things. To not let those things be taken away so I can prove to you that God favors me. I will win in court. I will win in this dispute. I will be successful in all my relationships. I will add numbers to the church, whatever the endeavor might be. Because I must have more in some direction or another so that I can prove that I am close to God. I must have a long list of healings and salvation experiences that people have had under my ministry and that I've had personally. And unless, you know, I, I need more and more of this. I gotta send out my newsletter and tell you about all the places I've gone to. I've got to gain more and more to manifest that I am favored of God, that I am close to God. Jesus was in the form of God and he let it go. He let it go. Not just in some nondescript way. He let it go. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He didn't look anything like you would expect someone who was close to God to look like. In the outward presentation, you would have to see the value of his sacred heart in order to understand the value of his life. And being found, verse 8, in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death do you know with me, they took everything away from him. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. They took away, or tried to, they tried to take away his reputation. They falsely accused him left and right. They worked constantly to take away his followers and his disciples. They took away his cloak. They ripped out his beard. They made a spectacle of him. They said, if you are the Son of God, do something about this. And Jesus did not feel that I have to prove to you that I am God's favored son because I understand. I just need to be content with my father's love and fulfill my ministry and I will enter into my riches. They can take everything away from me and they often will. And that's no proof that God isn't with you. Not at all. And you need to learn how to live that way. Brothers and sisters, you need to learn that godliness and being self-sufficient as a strengthening of the Spirit in that attachment and in that project, I just want to be godly. I just want to honor His Word and grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and be a fully developed Christian in love and in faith and in doctrine and perseverance. Godliness with that kind of objective is great. Gain. Remember the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We are told in verse 9 that the Lord Jesus Christ, not the second rate little demagogue, the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, he became poor. Is that possible for Christians today? That maybe you are like the rich farmer of Luke 12. But imagine becoming poor for the kingdom of heaven's sake and being content. I don't necessarily imbibe the full argument of Anthony Norris Groves, but if you've never read 
his life, it would really be quite a spiritual exercise to read the way this man lived out his life. One example along these lines is what Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 19. And in the 12th verse, he says that there are some individuals that make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And just to prove that he's not kidding about this, he ends by saying, he that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Now I give you that idea because it just provokes your reflections in the kind of attitude and life disposition and perspective that I'm talking about. Many of us think that if we were to have God's favor, he will bless us with a wonderful wife or a wonderful husband. And I'm not dismissing that that is true. He that findeth a good wife findeth favor with the Lord. I have a wonderful wife and I'm very thankful for God's blessing. But I'm not the one who said this. Jesus did. He said there are some people, whereas most feel like I want something more. And if God blesses me with a wonderful wife, then I can put my picture with my wife's picture on the cover of whatever, homeschool magazine or ministry incorporated or whatever. You know what I'm saying? And I can show that God has blessed me because look at my wife is a Proverbs 31 wife and I'm a something or other husband. And I'm not mocking that kind of thing. I'm juxtaposing ways of reflecting. And I'm trying to say that for whatever legitimacy that might have, there is also a lot of legitimacy to what Jesus speaks about. Here is a mindset like Paul's who said, I will release my desire for marriage. I will reduce my advancement in the mat matrimonial enterprise. And I believe that Jesus would say there's great gain in that. Now, we don't go as far as, for example, the early third century church father origin of Alexandria did, and as Eusebius argues, it's disputed, but he went to a doctor and he had himself castrated because of this very verse, but also because he was ministering and mentoring young men and young women, and he didn't want there to be any suggestion that anything untoward was occurring between them. A life directed to the kingdom of God will often be characterized by reduction, not by adding. At the end of the 19th chapter of Matthew, the same one in which verse 12 is found, right in that context, I want you to hear a little bit more because maybe we're not able to receive embracing the life of a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake, but all of us are called to the following. In verse 29 of Matthew 19, And everyone that has forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or fathers, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, let's stop right there. Is this something that he thinks is unlikely or unnecessary? Or, you know, you might have had the experience of brethren not walking with you anymore. Maybe a father ostracizing you or a mother not wanting your company or a wife having a real problem with your walk in Christ or a husband or your children not following your example. Or you may have lost some property or a house or something in that direction. 
And maybe you felt like, boy, I must be a really bad Christian. Well, I hope you're not. There are times when those things occur because we are reaping what we've sown. And as I already have said, I cannot obviously cover all the possibilities that fall within these reflections. But I'm stressing this afternoon that Jesus says that the experience of the godly will often look like reduction. You just lost another friend. You just lost a brother who used to walk with you. That's what he said. He goes on to say that you will receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. But then he goes on to say, but many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. I just want to briefly make a remark about this reception of a hundredfold, because there has been some emphasis over time taken out of Mark chapter 10, which I will now present to your ears. That is a parallel passage. Beginning in the 30th verse, Jesus speaking about the same idea. Those that have lost houses and brethren and fathers and mothers and wives and so on because they follow Jesus and they're not going to compromise their walk with Christ. They're content to just have Jesus if they lose all their children. You're not looking to lose your children, but are you content to just have Christ if that's what the cost of godliness requires? But some have advocated that, oh, that may occur to you, but then they double back and say, if you are really godly, however, you will have all of these things restored in your life now a hundredfold. Why do they say this? Because of what is said in Mark chapter 10, again, beginning in verse 30. But he shall receive an hundredfold, and Mark has, now in this time. Houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the world to come, eternal life. And then Jesus adds here in Mark chapter 10, just as is recorded in Matthew chapter 19, but many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. What I want to point out to you first of all is though I am not advocating the gospel of poverty. As a matter of fact, I'm very thankful that God does bless His people so that they can build the kingdom of God. If nobody has anything, then nobody can, instead of building barns, disperse this out for the good of God's church and people. So I'm not opposed to that. But what I am saying is anything in the direction, whether full-throated or just a little bit misstated that is arguing that what Jesus is saying is I'm telling you, you're going to get a hundred more of everything, these material goods in this life. They are not reading this passage soundly. For example, he says you'll get a hundred houses. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time arguing this out. I'm going to just make some remarks and then you can think about it on your own. Do you really think he means you're going to get literally a hundred houses? What Christian would want a hundred houses? How would you ever serve God with a hundred houses? And if you think that is literal, would you really get a hundred brethren? Well, you think, well, maybe. Well, how about a hundred sisters? That could be. Are you going to get a hundred mothers? Obviously, it isn't literal. And a hundred children, some of the sisters just say, oh, God, help us. You know what I mean? I mean, I've had 10, 12, 7, 5, whatever. A hundred. 
What he is saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that if you will release the things that the world is chasing after you, I will bring the riches of a version of this that is a blessing from heaven that means as you serve me in my kingdom and you just become a sojourner and a traveler just ministering my gospel all over, I will open up houses to you all over the world. You'll find brothers and sisters in Christ. You'll find mothers and children and there'll be lands that you'll visit and and by the way, all of this will come with persecution. But he adds, some that want to be first in terms of having all these things, they're going to wind up in the end being at the very end of the line. They're going to be last. And others that are last, in this reflection, they are able or they are willing to endure and wait for the Lord's blessing. They just keep serving the Lord and serving the Lord and not trying to pull to themselves and build a better life for now. They just serve the Lord and have contentment that they're living for Jesus and, and they've broken this covetousness so that if they take it away from you, you're okay. They're going to be first in receiving their eternal blessing. You could certainly flip that too, by the way, if you want to. You could say, if you're the first one to give up these things, you're going to be the last one who's going to have to give an account to God while your pockets are stuffed with money and your bank accounts are filled tippity-top, and yet the church still suffers in terms of its ability to serve God's kingdom. Which is, by the way, not an argument against the sort of ant-like gathering in the summer in order to stabilize or be self-sufficient in the right sense in the winter, you know, so the church doesn't have to bail you out left and right. Again, one can't cover all possibilities. We're talking about a disposition of the heart, brothers and sisters. In Mark chapter 3, just to make the point, harmonize this with Mark chapter 10, we read about the multitude coming to Jesus in the 32nd verse and saying, your mother and your brethren are seeking you. And Jesus lived the kind of life that we're talking about. I mean, he didn't forsake his mom in an unloving, unkind way, but it has to wait for another time if we were going to describe effectively the truth that in a very real sense, Jesus did walk away from his family and he did walk away from his brethren. You know his brethren didn't believe on him until after his resurrection? You know that his mother and his brethren didn't really understand him? One point they thought he was mad? Do you understand that? And it might have looked like, well, he can't be the son of God. His own family doesn't agree with him. No, that was because he was willing to let that go. He found contentment in doing his father's will. You know, of course, what he does. He says, he points to the crowd. He says, this is my mother and this is my brethren. Dear friends, I'm just saying exegetically, that's what he's talking about in Mark chapter 10 and in the end of Matthew chapter 19. I hope that that is clear to you that he's talking about you might lose. We hope you don't. I hope I don't. I'm praying for loved ones. I hope they all come in. I hope next week they're filling these pews and I'm going to be thanking God. And it is his faithfulness. Amen. But I'm still going to tell you, it doesn't necessarily prove that I'm maturing in my Christian walk. 
It could just be God's providence. No, it's not beside the point that I should mature in my Christian walk and be like Elijah to have a righteous life that can pray and my prayers avail much. But do you understand what I'm saying? There's a distinction between those things being true and us thinking that just because something manifests, it proves we're godly. And if it doesn't manifest, it proves you're not. I hope you don't look at your brothers and sisters in Christ and say, well, I guess they've been struggling with that trial for a while. They must not be walking with God. Well, let's consider the 7th and 8th verses of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out And having food and clothing, let us be there with content. In the direction of becoming content to be a Christian, this verse is teaching us that contentment is godliness plus nothing but God. Now, it's important to point out that contentment is not God without godliness. That is not what Paul argues. I must say that that idea in itself deserves a full treatment, which we will not enter into. But he does not say that contentment with God, you know, I'm saved by the grace of God. I'm not very godly, but it doesn't bother me because I've got God and I'm happy with the fact that I can just say I go to church. I've got God. I, I believe in Jesus, but there's no godliness in my life. He doesn't say that. I'm not an Arminian, but he doesn't say that. But I am saying, and he does, as we just read, and we're going to talk about this just briefly. This point won't take very long, I don't think. That contentment is godliness plus nothing except God. I mean, what else is he saying when he says we brought nothing into this world? We can bring nothing from this world out of it. Let's start from the beginning again. You brought nothing into this world except sin. A bad record and a bad heart before you were even able to understand what that meant. You brought nothing positive into this world and you're going to bring nothing of value out of this world to present before God. But you are going to go out of this world and you are going to give an account before the judgment seat of Christ. And so what he's advising is If you, in the pursuit of standing before Jesus and giving an account for your life, if you wind up having only food and clothing, then be content. And he's not kidding. And we may need to walk that out literally before this is over. That all you have is food and clothing. Everything else has been taken from you. And you can deal with that. Could you be imprisoned? Could your rights be taken away from you? Could you be treated like a criminal, like an outcast? Could you, in the pursuit of Christ, have all of your brothers, even confessing brothers in Christ that don't understand this kind of commitment, walk away from you? And so maybe your numbers reduce even more than they already have. They did for Jesus. Could you be content if you know you're walking with Jesus and you do have a godliness about you. Do you know, here again we reflect on a biblical person, 
that this statement that Paul makes may be echoing from the life of Job. In one day, Job lost all of his possessions and all of his children. In the way that God allowed Job's life to unfold, there came a point in Job's experience who, though he was very blessed by God, and it is stated in some sense that he was blessed because of his righteous life. And you'll remember, of course, his associates, his brethren, kind of made that connection, didn't they? If you're really godly, this would have happened to you. You would have more and more and more because God, because gain is proof of godliness. But God obviously didn't agree with that. Even though we love Job, are you listening to me? In one day, he lost 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, 500 mules, almost all of his laborers, seven sons, three daughters. Try to take that in. One day, lost everything. And this is what he said. He rent his mantle, shaved his head, he fell down on the ground and he worshipped. I don't fault him for renting his mantle and shaving his head. That just proves this is no joke. This really happened. Things like, things like this can happen. When you get the phone call, when you hear the story that so-and-so is against you now or something like that, my word, does it rend your heart and make you want to shave your head? But he sat down and he worshipped. And then he gives us a poem. Actually, most of Job is in a poetic style. But a, a purposeful poem comes next in the 21st verse of the first chapter of Job. And it reads as follows. And Job said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Oh, hallelujah. He didn't fuss and complain and say, God, I've been serving you all these years. How can you allow this to happen? What kind of God are you? Oh, I know we wrestle with that down the road. I understand it's hard. But then when you lose your bodily health and you're losing everything, but God was teaching him, Job, if I really am the object of your faith, your exceeding great reward, then be content that you belong to me. And ultimately, Job did come to that understanding. But I'm saying that Job here, even with all that he lost so fast, he says, I'm content. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I hope to God that I will have that testimony. I hope to God that you will have that testimony. I hope to God in the small things, when somebody doesn't return something or you lose something or somebody bumps into your car or, again, when there's a misunderstanding and somebody walks away from you and it's not because you were living out a bad testimony. You know what I'm saying? That you can just, you know, you can just say, okay, all right, praise the Lord. I belong to Jesus. The Lord gives. The Lord bless me with that thing or that relationship. And I had to stay faithful to God and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm content to belong to you, Jesus.